Hey everybody, and welcome to Endure, the Athlete Story. I am your host, Emmett Mullen. This podcast is brought to you by EJX2 Coaching. I am a triathlon coach uh, with a background in sports science, and I provide training plans for triathlon coaching and endurance coaching. I also provide lactate testing for anyone based in the northwest of Ireland. So if you're interested in um, getting a chat about training plans or any questions you might have about your training, please feel free to get in touch. Uh, You can contact me on EJX2Coaching on Instagram or Facebook. And if you're interested in lactate testing as well, please get in touch. Today's guest on the show is Ronan McLaughlin. Ronan's the current Everston world record holder. In a time of 6 hours, 40 minutes and 54 seconds, Ronan ascended 8,848 vertical metres on a bike, which is the height of Mount Everest. Ronan done this in the iconic climb of Mamore Gap in County Donegal in Ireland. Ronan is also the Donegal 555 record holder, which is a 555km endurance race around the Wild Atlantic Way in Donegal in Ireland as well. Ronan's a former and post professional rider who now works for cyclingtips.com as a tech writer. This was a great chat with Ronan and it went on for over 90 minutes so we're going to split it into two parts and you're listening to part one at the moment. And Part one, Ronan tells us about how you get into cycling, the challenges he faced as a young cyclist and his journey to becoming a pro with Ampost team. Ronan also touches on his testing and training methods leading into the Everston world record We dive much deeper into this, but in part two, which will be out on Friday the 16th of April. So stay tuned for that also. And for now, hope you enjoy part one. Let us know what you think. Leave a review. Enjoy. So, Ronan McLaughlin, welcome to Endure, the athlete story. It's a pleasure to have you on, and thank you for your time. Thank you for for having me. It's a uh, it's exciting uh, to get chatting here. Yeah, yeah. Um, so obviously, well, the elephant in the room here we'll mention we'll mention first off, but you're just fresh off. Uh, I haven't I haven't put on that much weight yet. <laughs> <laughs> you're fresh off a new world record for the Everest challenge which is for anyone that isn't sure well we'll let you tell them for what is the Everest challenge on a bike run uh yeah it's basically you you can select any you know road you want in the, in the world obviously it has to be uphill to start with but you can select any any road or any climb you want and then you go up and down that single stretch of road enough times until you reach the cumulative height of Mount Everest uh, so I chose Mamore Gap, and there's 117 uh, meters of elevation gain for every ascent of Mamore Gap. So I had to do it 76 times uh, to reach the 8,848 meters of of Mount Everest. And yeah, just about well, nearly three weeks ago now, I did it. I did that 76 laps in six hours and 40 minutes and 54 seconds, which is yeah. which is ridiculous, really for even the challenge itself for anyone to sit and think about that. But I think you've mentioned before is that Mamora is a perfect, nearly a perfect rover, but it's 
a really tough it's straight up for anyone who doesn't know me more you can google it or you can see it in uh, the short documentary made about Ronan and his preparations for it but it's such a tough tough climb it's there's no there's no let up in it so <laughs> yeah and that's part of the reason you know it, it is possibly one of the most ideal climbs on the planet for for everesting and um you know certainly there's uh, a few riders around the world who've had the record and have been training for the record and planning to attempt the record and that and you know they're all looking for a climb very similar or better than one more gap and we're just very lucky that it happens to be right on my doorstep so mm-hmm. you know that was you know it, it is the ideal climb but also quite significant to me is the fact that whenever I started cycling I used to just cycle over to Mamor. well I started and the first challenge was to try and cycle up Grania's Gap without having to get off and walk and mm-hmm. eventually did that and I spent um, I don't know I think I used to go the way, the way I remember in my head was every day after school but it was probably like once or twice a week after school <laughs> <laughs> I would come home from school get on the cycling kit uh, and try to get over Grania's Gap without having to, to walk and it would take me 25 minutes to get from our house to the top of the climb and turn around and come home again and then once I'd sort of you know completed that challenge and, and got over Grania's Gap a few times without having to get off and walk and then sort of started looking at the weekends to go in a bit further and heard about this place Memorial Gap and you know I was told it was the steepest road in Ireland it's actually the other side of it that's you know reportedly the steepest road in Ireland yeah. but yeah it, that doesn't take anything away from the straight side of it that's also incredibly steep 23-24% of the top and uh, yeah so that became the challenge then to try and get out over that without having to get off and walk and that took me a long time as well and I remember you know stopping at the bottom of it and taking everything off the bike that I could taking off water bottles taking off saddlebag taking off you know if I was wearing a jacket just taking off the jacket and wearing just a jersey trying to get as light as possible to get me over this this climb and yeah I remember standing there sort of debating should I should I take the I think it was a money disc player back then but take the money disc player for music to help encourage me over it or should I just you know there's that extra weight that's going to stop me but yeah so eventually got up at once and that was part of the you know it's what made it special to use my more gap for me as well to go back now and do it 76 times it's just uh it shows the progression that is possible yeah nothing's changed then you're still throwing as much things <laughs> off your bike and off your your kit just to get yourself as light as possible but it is uh it's an amazing claim it's like a spectacle just to see it because i remember my first experience of memoir on a bike was uh someone you'll know arn dean i was out with arn and um mm-hmm. it was just me and him for whatever reason just whatever i done they deserve just been out in the bike on my own with arn i don't know but I was just hanging on this wheel the whole way down, went down past Bunkrana all flat, and I was just dying on behind him. So he says, we'll go over this climb and more. And I was like, where's that? Ah, just keep going. It's nearly here. It's not far outside Bunkrana. So if anyone does know it, then you'll know this. But well, like you go over the wee bridge after Bunkrana, you're riding up and you have a few wee hills there, like a few wee kicks. And I remember saying like, is this it? This isn't too bad. Just, he was just laughing. He's like, you'll know you'll know when you're on it like and uh, i don't i think i've seen him again in Clonmany the next town over <laughs> after you he definitely left, he left me that that first time where you've sort of that road out from bunkrana is is really tough as well like yeah. I've, I've raced out that in the ross a few times going to do more gap and 
like the bunch get split the pieces on that road from the town mm-hmm. out to the bottom and more and then there's one part just where you come over the crest of a hill and like the forest sort of clears yeah and you can see, you it, see it in it. front of you and it's just yeah it never it never gets any less nah. shocking just how yeah. how steep it is and i have a great video on my phone actually of uh, uh mateo chigala a teammate of mine came up to see memorial gap before the ross and over at the last time in 2017 and he had never seen it before, obviously. So we came over this climb and I had the video going just knowing what their reaction would be. And yeah, it's just a complete shock at how, how steep this road is. Like uh, It's unbelievable. But we'll touch more on that in a second. But so that's, you're just fresh off doing that. A new world record for Everston, a Memorial Gap. But take us back to where that journey started of getting on a bike and just like why cycling or what was it that you first done? Um, with no real idea how I got into cycling, um, but I have a few, you know, very early memories of of when I started, and it would have been probably fifteen or something when I started mm-hmm. first getting the notion of of road bikes. I was always on, uh, you yeah. know, mountain bikes and kids bikes and stuff when I was growing up. You know, basically half my childhood was spent on two wheels, I think, and um, you know that was back when. You know the world was maybe a, a nicer place and you could head off as a 10 year old or whatever and you know nobody had to worry about you or whatever and the only thing that mattered was that you were back by dinner time at six o'clock and mm-hmm. you know you usually spent about three and a half minutes eating dinner and then straight back out in the bike again and um yeah for for some reason i, I not for some reason I, every summer i worked for me for my dad but at the end of one particular summer for some reason when he asked me what i wanted for having worked that whole summer for him um, I said I wanted a road racing bike and um, with no idea why but I, there's a couple of sort of early memories I have that I can sort of piece together and perhaps answers it but you know one, one of them is seeing a time trail out you'll, you'll know it as well the, the Burt Road yeah. um, and I, I think it might have been the triathlon club it could have been a cycling club but I, I don't think it was any cycling clubs having time trails out there at that time so uh, I just remember seeing one of these racing bikes with the drop handlebars and as I called it, the big triangle thing out the front of it. And that was, you know, <laughs> clip on arrow bars or something. So yeah. that that was, I remember, you know, we, we were just driving past on our, you know, out working with my dad and seeing that. And for some reason, I just there and then wanted one of them. So, um, you know, that, that was, that obviously had some sort of influence on me. And then before I got the bike, I remember, you know, watching Tour de France on Eurosport and hearing Sean Kelly commentating and knowing, he was Irish and then figuring out how good he was yeah. uh, and happened to find a, a video about Sean Kelly. And at the same time, there's another uh, person lived in, you know, in near, near enough also did a lot of cycling as well and never, never into road bikes or anything, but just sort of suggested that, you know, you should try cycling a bit. And I think just all these things together sort of landed me on a bike and not really knowing much, just knowing that, you pedal as hard as you can and if, if you can get to the top of grounds gap without walking then you're you're doing all right and, yeah. uh that that was sort of the start of it like just snowballs from there and then we in that club or did you have your eye on racing straight away or what was that uh well that would have been 2002 um i think it would have been september 2002 maybe when i when i got i finally got the bike and uh, that was a big day, you know, we went to Dublin to get, don't know why we had to go to Dublin, there's plenty of bike shops locally, but we just didn't know about them at the time, so yeah. went to Dublin, had to get, you know, I thought it was Lance Armstrong's bike, but, it, you know, it turns out it was the most entry-level trek 
that there was at the time of Trek 1000. Uh, you know, the al- aluminium or whatever, you know, the, the US postal team would have been on carbon bikes, but that was the height of Armstrong's era. And yeah, you know, that, that was all I seen on, on, uh, TV. So yeah, I was obviously influenced by that as well and, and, and wanted the, the US postal colored bike. And yeah, we went to Dublin, got that and started, didn't really do much with it to start with. It kind of was coming into winter and I got caught out badly in a few, winter showers and stuff and that sort of put me off until the spring turned again and I think then just around springtime I heard about a, a charity cycle from Mazenhead to Malenhead and um, for the Ford Hospice and that was sort of when I heard about that yeah I just then thought well that's obviously what I need to do <laughs> no idea why but just seemed like a pretty good idea like so ended up doing that and met quite a few local cyclists on on that who then only a matter of months after that, that that same sort of group went on to form Foil Cycling Club, or or you know people within that group went on to form Foil Cycling Club, and um, yeah, that that sort of it was sort of you know very lucky for me that the club came along at the same sort of time as I was just getting into cycling, and that group who'd or you know a good few of that group who'd done the Mizzen the Malm, who I sort of got to know and learned a lot from on the bikes. They were then meeting every Saturday and Sunday to go out and do yeah. three or four or five hours and fell in with them and you know back then we were sort of you know if, if we got eight or ten riders out on a Sunday morning we thought that was a huge group and um, you know the club's gone on 18 or 19 years down the line now and you know in normal times you would have had maybe three or four groups of of 20 meetings so you know the club's growing yeah. massively in that in that period but that was just the very beginning of it and certainly helped me a lot in, in getting into cycling and, and learning the ropes of riding in a bunch and you know how to eat and drink on the bike and you know how to plan a route and this that and the other just you know all, all the stuff that you sort of do without thinking about now but is the yeah. basics of cycling that, make, that is so important like so uh, yeah from there then I sort of again another Aaron Dean's name come up again uh, Aaron was looking working in the local bike shop and it was time for an upgrade in the bike for me and yeah met Aaron and started training with him and spent uh I think he got lucky enough if he only had to spend one day on his wheel I had to spend uh. months on months on end <laughs> on his back wheel and yeah um that that certainly toughened me up a bit so it did so um yeah from there just got into racing and yeah have you still got the your first bike the track I I do yes um I, I still have I still have all the parts in the frame, but they're not assembled together <laughs> and they can't be assembled together because if I sort of tried to do some maintenance on it before I understood how to maintain a bike. <laughs> you know, surprisingly, it turns out you do not need um, a mallet and a hacksaw to, to right. maintain your bike. But I thought at the time that you did. So Cycling mechanics 101, do not use a hammer yeah. and a hacksaw. But um, do as I say, not as I do. Uh, it'll be um, it's probably the only Trek one thousand from that time that's probably held its money, or maybe it increased a bit now that it's a world record holder's <laughs> first bike. So uh, anyway, well, I maybe. suppose I, I, you know, it, it is salvageable, and and at some point I'll have to go back and put it all together. Like, but um, when it, when I do get it reassembled, I don't think uh, it'd be worth any amount of money to sell. Like, that's where. The journey began like and it's probably mm-hmm. you know a, a, you know not not to get too deep or anything like but my dad was always you know 
we got anything we needed when we were growing up like but that's possibly one of the best things he ever bought me given everything that's come out of it like and yeah whole career and everything now, like so yeah definitely that that thing's uh invaluable to me in a way high sentimental value mm, definitely but, um you, you, you mentioned there as well it came around the spring and you heard about a Muslim cycle which for again anyone that's not too sure it's the length of Ireland basically Muslim is the very southerly point of Ireland and Malinhead is the very northerly point of Ireland and it's usually people get out their first bike or something and say I want to try 30 miles or I want to try 50 miles sportif you wanted to cycle the length of Ireland so I think from day one you had that mentality of pushing yourself and seeing how far you could you could push your body and yeah i've never actually realized how bonkers that was until you just mentioned it there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> i don't yeah, think i, I, I don't think you realize how bonkers a lot of things that you do are <laughs> on a bike uh, anyway. po- possibly not but i do remember actually now when you just literally now when you said i've had flashbacks of like having to ring my mom to come and collect me and i might only have been 15 miles from home and i if I remember right, that was only a matter of weeks before we were going to do the Muslim Mall. Like it was, yeah, definitely was the deep end. Like, uh, yeah, it yeah. Um, so it developed on you. Obviously, you went on the race for Ampost. How tell us about that that journey, that next jump up from starting your first few charity cycles to racing as a professional. Yeah, it was fairly, fairly rapid. So it was, it was like, uh, it's almost like a bit of a roller coaster. And that, you know, that was two thousand and three. I did the the Mizzen de Malin. Uh, two thousand and four, you know, the the ambition was to start racing, but I didn't really realize you could race every weekend, pretty much, if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. Especially back then, there would have been more races on the calendar. Um, and I, I think I did, I did, I did my first race in Money More and lasted about three miles. And then I did another race about a month later and went a bit better. And I might have only raced, you know, three or four times that year, but each time I sort of did a bit better. And that was my first year junior. You get two years in the junior category. And that was my first year junior. And, you know, it was very, very sort of raw, I suppose, and didn't didn't understand anything about bike racing or tactics or anything. I was just, you know, go as hard as you can for as long as you can. Um, but really, really enjoyed it. And, uh, didn't really didn't do much racing that year. Two thousand and five and second year junior started doing a lot more racing and you know figured out that there was a junior tour of Ireland and junior national championships and stuff like that and um, heard about a track in in Dublin and you know went down to the track for for a for a session and overheard a few other guys saying that they were going to Belgium for a few weeks racing and I thought that might be a good idea. So my dad picked me up and says. I, I, I want to go to Belgium next week. <laughs> as bonkers as that was, like he was, he, as far as I remember, he was all up for it. Yeah. And, um, th- yeah, went to Belgium for four weeks to start with, I think. And, you know, there, there was a house in Belgium that Irish writers could go to. And mm-hmm. I think at the time there was like, there was sometimes there was like 30 or 35 of us in this a single house. Like, um, and, and that was a learning experience. But that was sort of the first time I met. Kurt Bogarts and, and Sean Kelly, who who both ran the Ampos team and um, got to know them. And Kurt sort of coached me for a while. And then I came home, did the Junior Tour of Ireland. That went well. Went back to Belgium and stayed for another six weeks or so. And that went well. And 
uh, sort of headed home for the winter, you know, with the ambition of training well for the next year when it'd be first year on the 23. Um, and probably did more drinking and socializing that winter than I did training. So that didn't really go to plan, but eventually got back to Belgium in 2006 for another month or two. And um, same again in 2007. And uh, around the start of 2007, started training a lot with, with Philip Dagen, another, um, well, one of uh, Ireland's top pros of the last couple of decade, decades, yeah. like, and spent a lot of time in, in France training with Philip and, uh, really, you know, sort of began to knuckle down in 2007 and still had that sort of communication and with Kurt and at the end of that year, Ampos came in to sponsor the team and um, Kurt sort of, well, you know, it's, it's not, it's not to put it too bluntly or, or uh, you know, not it, it's not, not, not a surprise when I say that he needed Irish writers and yeah. I was an Irish writer who was willing to go abroad. So I maybe got the opportunity or definitely got the opportunity before I was perhaps ready for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's what I mean. It was a bit of a roller coaster in that I was having all these ups and downs where I would have a few good races and then I would, you know, I was in LYIT at the same time and wasn't really fully focused, but sort of thought I was and taking a month off and then taking a month seriously and, it was really 2007 before I really knuckled down and um, sort of made it, made it, you know, three or four months in a row in, in Belgium racing consistently and never really getting great results, but just always sort of gradually improving and, and learning the ropes. And um, yeah, then, you know, the chance came around that the team was looking for Irish riders and um, I'd sort of put myself in the position that, if you know that when that opportunity came up, I, I took it and yeah, I ended up spending six years in from 2008 to the end of 2013 with the Ampost team and racing all around all around Europe. Like, and yeah, that was uh, you know, I sort of uh, that was sort of then when I realized the importance of you know training well and eating well and living well and um, consistency, you know, the importance of consistency rather than just sporadically putting the head down for a while and then losing the blood for a while and yeah. you know that that but that I suppose that comes with age as well. Yeah and experience and obviously now you as a coach yourself you probably mm-hmm. look back and see where you could have been been more consistent or just sort of what advice would you give to someone like in your position then? What's the main thing you would say to them if they were like you were just kind of be coming and going from it uh well i would say you know you you sort of it'd be easier for me to say now i would as as given what i know now i would do this instead i would do that instead but you know i'm only where i am now because of what i've learned and what i've done for the last 34 years like so uh change any one small part of that and you probably change the whole uh the whole uh recipe or whatever you know it, it, Mm -hmm. it changes the whole outcome so definitely wouldn't change things but um if i was to give any advice i would probably just say you know don't be afraid to ask questions and there's there's no such thing as a a stupid question like it's yeah especially in sport like cycling or triathlon you know we're not born the the big thing that i sort of realized is that nobody is born or nobody is expected to understand bike racing tactics or the intricacies of training properly for for bike racing you know it's not it's not a natural thing like breathing or eating or sleeping. You know, you, you yeah. have to learn those things. And the only way to learn them is 
to first of all put yourself in a position to have the experience yeah. and also to to ask questions of people who are experienced and i was probably always too you know, too afraid to sort of there's an old saying you're better to keep your mouth shut and appear stupid rather than open it and remove all doubt or something to that effect and yeah. I, I maybe took that too literally and that's you know I want I was definitely in a team that was above the level I was at the time and I think I was uh, just a bit uh, overly conscious of that and you know I wanted to come across as being uh, more experienced and more perhaps deserving than, than I was and that was probably to my own detriment and that had I just you know asked the questions that I didn't ask questions about the part of the sports that, that I didn't understand I probably would have uh, gained the experience a lot quicker than than I did do ultimately yeah. and you know eventually you, you get there but it just slows down your progress a bit and yeah um, yeah that that was you know and and it's not that you know, yeah. At the time, you you always have to do what you feel is right. So you might ask a question, get an answer, and still do your own thing. That, yeah. that I think that's perfectly fine. But yeah, uh, <laughs> just asking the questions is is the big part. Like. Yeah. And how did that feel when you when you're out there as a young athlete in Belgium and France? And because maybe at first off, you say you're going to race in Belgium, you're going to race in France, or train and race in France and Belgium like it seems glamorous and it seems like the, the professional life that of an athlete that you know, it's sunshine and massages and but as a cyclist what's the reality of that as a young athlete as you say 30 people in a house that can't be that's not sound too glamorous yeah. uh, and stuff like how you, in a house and three bunk beds in one room and you know their mattress lying somewhere else yeah that's definitely definitely not glamorous and especially you know springtime in belgium you you don't have the sunshine and stuff like so mm. it's um but you know that i don't think i don't think anybody by the time you get to the point where you're ready to to move abroad and and try international racing i think that sort of most people are aware that you know it's not all bells and whistles it's not as glamorous as it, as it seems first of all and yeah uh, especially at the the lower categories it's uh you know it's all about sort of fighting through and and everybody in those lower category races is looking to move up so it's very very cutthroat like and and you sort of have to be you know rather than being at your best for a couple of races per year you have to almost be good all the time mm. uh, and that that takes a level of fitness as well it just takes a bit of time to develop and um you know we, we see i think it's it's probably more difficult nowadays for young riders trying to make it abroad and that you know it's very easy to look at the likes of pogaccia and evenepoel and uh, all these other young riders who are you know world beaters already and they're still teenagers yeah and think that you know that everybody has to be like that but you know that's they really are you know phenomenal athletes and just you know they're they're so much different than than the norm. They're, you can't even put it into words. Like it, it's it's still the normal path is you know you go to junior and then you go to under twenty three and you progress through under twenty three and you become a pro and then you take a couple of years to progress into being a pro and by the time you get to your mid to late twenties that's when you're at your best. Yeah. You know, and for for young athletes to be looking and going, like you know, um, Remco Vinopol is European time trial champion at nineteen. I need to be doing the same. It's it's not. Yeah, it's not realistic. They they really are just you know uh, 
I'm, I'm lost for the right word to explain them like it's it's yeah. incredible what they can do but it, it shouldn't be the new normal or it shouldn't be yeah. the new benchmark that everybody judges themselves against yeah because i think you have that across a lot of different endurance and sp- endurance sports like in triathlon and even running like jacob ingebrigtsen i'm not sure if you're familiar with him but um same thing it's like he's got records and european champion and he's like just turned 20 and he's been doing it since he's 16 competing at senior level and it's just ridiculous and there's no one else doing it at his age at that level but for people to look at and say uh like feel down about themselves as a young athlete to say oh he's 17 and he's doing this and i'm only doing this whereas like they are i think you should what i'm trying to say is you should draw inspiration from that like and they push you on rather than feel demotivated and feel feel like it's time to give up just because you're not there yet like it's they are once in a lifetime or every once in a while athletes that come along at that age and just have it whether it's well i argue as well if there's a actually they have a, a series called team ingebrigtsen because there's three brothers and they're all top level runners from norway and the, the dad coaches them and he's great crack he's like really kind of strict but fair and like loving and still that like family environment but there's early footage of them out before school at six in the morning when they're like eight and nine and ten and they're out roller skiing though like the cross-country ski training in this car park so uh, is it a case of like it's could be a chance of like good feel to max and good genes and that sort of thing but when he's 20 he's have been training like full time since he's been 10 so maybe it's that side of things as well where you just don't see the background of them things and it could be the same with the young athletes in cycling they've just been doing it for so long and just so good mixed with that but a lot of genes and genetics <laughs> yeah the, the one thing that's regardless of what age you reach your peak you know i think everybody will tell you the hardest thing is not I, I don't know personally, but you know, I, I've heard plenty of people say that it's not the hardest part isn't getting to the top or getting to be the best in the world. It's it's staying there. Yeah. And you know, if you look at top level athletes, you know, most of them have a short career span at the very yeah. top of the top of their sport. Um and you know, there's nothing to say as impressive as Pogaccia and these writers are nowadays, we, we don't know yet. Is that are they going to maintain that sort of mm-hmm. level for 15 years, or are they going to maintain that level for three or four years? And, and yeah, you know, yes, they came to the sport at such a young age, but are they are they already at their peak? We we don't know. And that uh, that again comes back to you know every every individual is exactly that an individual, and yeah. we're all we're all, we're all different. We progress at different rates. We learn different rates. We improve it different rates and it's just yeah. you know it's taken me I, I would probably argue I'm, uh, I'm probably a better athlete now than I was when I was full time but you know it's taken me 15 years to get to the level that I'm, that I'm at now and you know I, I, I'm, I'm reluctant to say I'm better now because you know I'm training at different levels I'm juggling a job and family and all that as well so um, I think I think what I actually mean by that is if I was you know, full time with only focusing on sport again, I would probably be at a higher level now. You know, the level yeah. that I'm at with the commitments that I have and, you know, the everything else that I have uh, sort of suggests to me that I'm probably, there's no way of quantifying it, like, but 
probably had a probably a better athlete now. Mm. Um, but I was probably, if you look at the raw numbers, I was probably better back ten years ago. But just you find you find ways to uh, use your numbers more efficiently or uh, why more more wisely, or you just direct yourselves at something yourself at something that you can perform better at. Like, and there's no doubt. I couldn't have done an Everesting in six hours and 40 minutes 10 years ago when I was at my best in, in international bike racing. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's no there's no doubt I could race a bike as well internationally now as I could back then. So it's, uh, you know, it's... Uh, come back? Yeah, no, definitely. That, that, <laughs> that's what I'm trying to say. I'm saying I can't come. I could, don't, don't be taking a, an everything as a suggestion that I that I could go back and, and race for the likes of Alan Post again. Like I think those days are long gone. Yeah, as you say, it's using using your numbers, the the what suits you or your advantage or what you have time for now in terms of balance and work and mm. family and that stuff. And I think. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, uh, I was just going to say I think. The big, the big difference in, you know, if we're talking numbers, we're probably talking about parameters and wattages and all that. Like, and I think the big difference is, whereas before and, you know, 10 years ago, when I, or 15 years ago, even when I first started getting into power, I was just, you know, the only focus was on the absolute number, like how, how high can you get a 20 minute test or how high can you get your threshold mm-hmm. or, you know, it was just the absolute was, was the only thing that mattered. Whereas now, you know, I, I, there's no focus at all or very little focus on the absolute it's more about the, the composition of that number and um you know the, the trying trying to go out and get peak powers every day is just unrealistic and mm-hmm. um it, it's more about just you know what 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 your fitness is made up of rather than just what the number suggests yeah for, for me in a way yeah well then that we've touched on that we we may as well get into it a bit because we don't about a testing for a few years now like i've helped you out with lactate testing and stuff and like your numbers are in terms of lactate and power your numbers even the first time i test you i don't know how many years ago five or six years ago but like you're extremely good and i was like really excited when i was because with all respect to everyone else that i've tested this was like this is what it was supposed to be this is the ones that like the professors were talking about that the lactate stays low for ages and the power keeps going up and like your numbers were really good and i was like when i test like this boy's fat like proper fitness like low lactate power going up mm-hmm. heart rate not going up much looking at you asking how you feeling you're like good and it's like 300 watts and it's like anyone else i've done this the, the bike's blowing up and they're blowing up and you're just like just it was just true fitness and you're obviously lean and light and i was like no wonder he's so good because like you see like strava or you see uh yeah a time trial or something it's like how does he how is he doing that or when with anyone that's a that kind of level of, that you are cycling on a bike it's like how are they doing it because like for me to comprehend it it'll be like that, that's just going as hard as I possibly could and I could do it for maybe one minute and you're holding it for whatever the distance is but then when I tested you and see your your numbers that way it's like right it's for him to hold 300 watts it's not that it's like me holding 180 watts it's not that big of a deal for him so it was really un- insightful and I remember testing you before the it might have been the first time five you'd five done five, the, the 555 it was just like 
and I don't know if I recommend this, but I listened to you. It was only like five days before <laughs> um, you done the test, and then you done the the five five five. But um, yeah. So then again, for the first time, you mentioned Everesting to me. We went and done like a. Mm-hmm. You wanted to do your own your own formula of testing of the type the inside testing you use. And we mm. done it on this freezing day, raining up a hill. And I think you were. That was a mistake. I think you were. <laughs> my virgin, hypothermia. You were you were getting it tight that side. Never mind the the pushing, pushing the bike. Mm-hmm. But so that was the first time I like heard about Everson. And even the way earlier you were saying about doing it more, I was saying, oh, why don't you do like a nice loop and it'll be easier mentally? And you're like. Nah, it's not about that. You're not allowed to do it like that. I was just thinking, just how could you enjoy doing that? But um, could I tell us about what other ways? So, like as you say, all the numbers and 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 harmony. Like you look at look at everything to make yourself a better athlete. What sort of things were you doing, training wise and physiology wise, leading into the Everest attempts? Uh, yeah, and um, it's funny that you say that the first test was. I, I think it was like. If I remember right, that was like a Tuesday or something. That was in the yeah. 555 kilometer ultra endurance race for anybody that doesn't know it was on it was on the Friday morning. Uh and then that test that we did last summer was I think again I, I think that was just about a week before the first Everest thing. Mm. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm then, just gonna I'm gonna throw on I'm just remembering. We tested the first time before the Donegal five 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 on a Tuesday and you done a ten mile time trail out the Moff mm-hmm. Road on a Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, so, then, and then did the five 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 on the Friday. Yeah, <laughs> uh, keep keep the motor taking over, you know. Uh, that's it. Yeah, priming <laughs> the engine cooling down, priming the body. Just um, so I go ahead. So then, uh, the then yeah, for this uh, record, Virgin on three weeks ago. So this day, three weeks ago, I uh, I did another. So I, I just I did the power performance decoder version of the inside testing so I didn't have to do the lactate numbers yeah. or, or take the lactate testing it's basically using a, a power curve uh, and that sort of contradicts what I was saying earlier about the absolute number but you know it's it, it's a way of doing that test that you do a, a three minute a six minute and a 12 minute effort um, and you're basically just you know feeding the model uh, the data it needs to work out your your you're uh yeah just to do that to do that test so i did that on the saturday uh with the plan to do the everything on the following thursday and literally got home um finished the test it's a two and a half hour ride to do the full test finished it absolutely gassed checked the weather forecast again for the following thursday and it completely changed while i was out in the road and the only day that was going to work was like three days later on the tuesday uh, so uh, we were back to that same scenario testing three days before the event which uh, definitely is not ideal but the reason I sort of like to do it so close to the event is because I can work out then my pacing and the feeling yeah. and nutrition and everything from from the data and you know it's you know and every rider and every parameter is probably one or two percent variation every single day you go out uh, and you know the rider could be up two percent the parameter could be down two percent or vice versa or they both could be up or they both could be down and so uh, you know it's it's really just a, a best uh, indicator it's not you can't use it as you know as as 
gospel, you you still go into the event with a bit of um, you know freedom to sort of write off field, or at least I let myself have a bit of freedom to write off field. But it's just nice to have an indicator of where you're at. And um, so I, I did that version of the test on Christmas week, which was when I started building towards this latest attempt, and then used that data to basically what I was focusing on was. Uh, developing my aerobic engine as much as possible and decreasing my glycolytic capacity or you know my lactate production basically as much as possible and, and working on uh, strength endurance so I was using Zwift actually quite a lot and yes it was because the weather was a bit crappy but also because it was just giving me such sort of freedom to really dial in the training and 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 especially for, uh, I did a lot of work at Tempo, a lot of work at, you know, just below threshold and um, sort of building that aerobic engine that way and, and trying to increase my anaerobic threshold and did that for probably two months. Uh, I was doing a lot of Alp to Zwift, doing a lot of Bontu on, on Zwift uh, and just literally riding at 50 RPM for an hour, taking five minutes recovery and riding 50 RPM for another hour and um when i do von two it takes an hour to write up that so i was like doing an hour at uh i think the last time i did it which was sort of an indicator that i was ready to go it was an hour at i, I would need to double check but if i remember right the first climb was an hour and i averaged 360 and then i had 10 15 minutes of recovery on the descent and did the climb immediately again uh, and average 350 or something for the second hour. So I basically done two and a half hours with uh, with two hours of it at, at 350 watts. So it's like, yeah, I'm probably probably ready to go here at this stage. Yeah. Um, but that that that's just you know it, it's not rocket science when you're preparing for an endurance event. Like that. it's just develop the aerobic engine as much as you can. Uh, and once once I'd worked on that sort of you know below threshold work as 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 much as it could then i sort of turned to lactate tolerance work a bit of over under threshold work and a bit of vo2 work just to you know, keep the keep the top not not the top end for attacking and that but just yeah. you know to keep my vo2 topped up and um basically when i did that test um three days before the last everesting yeah i'd focus on trying to get my vo2 up uh, and my anaerobic threshold up and both of those were up significantly compared to the test at Christmas. I was focusing on getting my VLA max or glycolytic capacity down and that was, it's it's very difficult to, to change that like but I went from 0.59 or something like that to 0.54 which I was delighted with. It sounds mm -hmm. like a very small change but it, you know I was I was delighted to, to get that even. Um, and yeah, it just you know, seemed like everything was primed and ready to go at that point. And um, it was just a case of yeah, going going three days later rather than going uh, five days later like I'd planned. And um, yeah, that was that was that was that was basically the whole philosophy behind the training. Like it, it, yeah. as I said, it wasn't rocket science; it was just um, building up the the power that I could sustain, building up the strength through you know big geared efforts for a long, long time and um yeah that was that was kind of it yeah you seem to really be in tune with like your body they know what works for you and like there as you just said you had a very clear plan of how you would do it and you're obviously very well clued on and using the 
testing methods and like even the way you're talking there, your VLA max, your VO2 max, things were specific to you for this event. And obviously mm-hmm. with the time you done, you, you that worked for you. So as you, as we were saying earlier, now you know how to use your strengths and how to improve your weaknesses for the event you're doing. And that, that obviously worked worked really well for you. Yeah. And the, you know, that again only comes through experience, like years of getting it wrong. I've sort of learned now, you know, I, I know the, the warning signs that nobody can give me and what's working, what's not working. And um, I, I know personally that I can spend, you know, hours on, on end just below threshold uh, and that, you know, that works for me and I actually really, really enjoy that type of training, you know, and yeah. if you do it outdoors, especially you're, you know, you're going, yeah. you're going pretty damn fast if you're, if you're riding like that, like in last summer, especially when I was training for the Everest, I was going out with like aero overshoes and race suits and aero helmets and deep section wheels and all just to ride tempo rides because, you know, you're absolutely motoring on the road, like, and it's just such a good feeling, like, yeah. and there was no racing to do, so we may as well yeah. put the kit to use, like, so um but yeah I, I know myself as well that you know if i go uh above well it's hard to say exactly because for a long time i, I didn't train maybe as as my body would have uh re- responded best to but i i knew that anytime i went above 125 130 uh, ctl then i started to break down and um, it was all right if I went up above that in a stage race and came out of it and recovered. But if I trained myself up to that level and then tried to race, you know, the racing just killed me rather than being at a lower level from training, going into a stage race and then the stage race lifting my fitness and lifting my form. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, that that's the ideal way you want it to work. But I knew for that to work for me, I had to be like 100 or 110 CDL. If I went in at 120 or 130 and came out at 150, then I was absolutely screwed like if, for a long time it, it, i just I, I wasn't able to sustain it you hear some writers been at you know 150 and then going into stage race and you're like yeah that doesn't work for me but yeah it might it, it works for them just well it doesn't work for me so i was sort of that that was part of the reason for you know i i could tell from the the sort of the uh i've lost the word now the sensations i was getting on the bike that i was moving really well i was in really good condition i knew to look at myself that i was in in good shape as well for the everest thing mm-hmm. um but i knew as well that i was getting very very close to the age and if i kept pushing it for another you know two three weeks hoping to find the perfect day i you know chances are i would have overcooked it or not not overcooked it i would have if i kept training that way i would have overcooked it or if i backed off i would have maybe lost the fitness and had to you know take a step yeah. back and completely build up again, again. In terms of you know mental energy, I was at the end of my my uh, I was at my capacity for that as well. It had been a long three months, and you know a lot of my training has to be done early in the morning or crammed in during lunchtime. Like so, um, yeah. all those things. You know, I, I looked at that day in in March. Uh, I knew that I hadn't tapered perfectly. I don't. I don't. Uh, a, a pretty hard session on Monday. It would have been Monday the fifteenth of March. It was only two hours or so, but I did two fairly hard blocks. Um, within I did twenty minutes at three hundred and seventy-six watts, and then five minutes, ten minutes easy, and then another twenty minutes at three hundred and seventy watts. 
and then I took Tuesday easy and Wednesday was St. Patrick's Day and um, there's a climb near here that I wanted to test for everything as well and it just happened to be that St. Patrick's Day was a really good day ideal conditions for that climb yeah uh, and I thought well let's go and do a half everything so I did a half everything on St. Patrick's Day um, two days after or three days after that I did the testing and then three days after that I you know was thinking well maybe that's the day for the full everything and I was like this is not a good taper I've I've, I've definitely backed off from what I was doing two weeks ago yeah but it's not the perfect taper um, and the end up I said well here look if I don't go and do it on uh, next week, I'm going to have to go out and do a big hard training day anyway. And I'm sort of not really mentally in the place to do another big blog of training. I may as well go start the everything. If it works out, it works out. Uh, and I'm so glad now that I did. Obviously, because I got yeah. the record, but also because there we're now three weeks on and I've been sort of keeping a half an eye on the on the on the forecast apps and there oh, hasn't been a day been terrible. Yeah. prime for everything on the more gaps since. Uh, yeah so uh that's just you know another uh, it's the same scenario for all three ever things i've done it's yeah. been a last minute decision based on the weather conditions thinking everything is not ideal but you sort of just have to put your front wheel on the start line and, and go and you know you, you make your own luck i got lucky it worked out all all three times mm-hmm. So, show's over. Thanks everybody for listening. Hope you enjoyed part one with Ronan McLaughlin. Remember, part two will be out on Friday the 16th of April. If you did enjoy the show, please leave a review. It means a lot. It allows people to find the show easier and more people to listen. And it'll only take a few seconds of your time. On Friday in part two, Ronan tells us more about his preparations physically and mentally and how choice of gear his bike his equipment all played a major factor and it's a really interesting topic so you don't want to miss it so thanks very much for listening 